Here's your almanac for tilling the cultural soil with the conversations we plan with humor, faith, and wisdom. Here's your hosts, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Carmen LeBurge, and I'm Nat. Welcome to The Till. Good mythical morning, or welcome to The Till. It's good to see you, Carmen and Peter. You too, Nat. I'm Nat. And we're talking about Rhett and Link and their four-part podcast series and a whole bunch of other stuff. So spiritual deconstruction is on the roster today and the red flags, Christianity, and a little bit of like postmodernism and stuff. So what do we have? Well, I'm curious. I mean, you know, Nat, this is, who did you say this duo was? I mean, I know there's 16.2 million viewers of these people, but I'm not among them. I don't know, Carmen, if you've been among them, but what are their names again? This is Rhett and Link. This is what they go by. Rhett and Link. Yeah. Carmen, have you heard of these two before? Not until, um, not until this conversation. Really? Okay, they host, and Matt, had you heard about them before? Yes, I've watched them for years. This article really? really took me by surprise, actually. So they host Good Mythical Morning. It's a daily sort of 15-minute sort of talk show genre, and then they host a whole bunch of other like sort of after-morning programs, and they've been doing this since 2006, I believe. And, you know, like you said, it's like 16.2 million uh, subscribers. So it's like it's off the charts. And they just sort of uh, go around, do a couple of fun activities, deal with maybe a little bit of a relevant topic, but it's really, you know, they call themselves entertainers and they really focus on uh, doing fun things on camera together and just sort of exploring that. Okay, so I want to give Peter a little, um, a little help, help you understand who they are, because I did a little research. So um, they have a combined net worth of an estimated twenty three million dollars. Oh, um, they wow. were, they were, this is the way one article describes them. They were once Christians, former missionaries yeah. for campus crusade. They, uh, they, they were once staff members of what is now called crew. So you can tell the person <laughs> that's writing this, does not have a lot of familiarity with campus crusade or crew and didn't not realize those were the same thing. <laughs> um, they have made guest appearances on shows like the today show live with mm-hmm. Kelly, the tonight show starring Jimmy Fallon. They are rising stars according to this particular blogger. I'm so, curious when that was written. Dated the 29th of February. Oh, so this of this year. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think probably in reaction to the the story that you and I both read, um, which was uh, posted a couple of days ago. Right. Which is interesting because, yeah. like I said, they've been doing this from 2006 and they've already made it. They've already been on shows. So it's interesting to call them rising stars. But uh, yeah, they're all over the Internet. Their podcast has been wildly successful, Ear Biscuits, which is, I believe, their first medium that they publish, sort of what we're talking about, where they walk through their sort of how they came from crew to where they are today spiritually and what they believe. All right. So here's a sentence you're going to like and we should talk about because this is really so this is not sparked. This conversation we're having today is not really sparked by their uh what's the mythical show, the mythical thing? Good mythical morning. Yep. This is actually, this conversation is really sparked by a podcast called ear biscuits, which apparently during the month of February, um, they had these videos walking fans through their spiritual deconstruction stories. Um, and apparently, um, the, the people who then follow them, right. Uh, have their faith challenged by the fact that these people, no longer believe, and therefore, since I'm following them, maybe I no longer believe. That seems to be what's going on here. 
So they're actually evangelical yeah. missionaries in um, in the truest of senses. It's just that the good news that they are now leading people to is the news that there is no good news. Yeah, they're sort of functionally, if I heard them described correctly, is that they um, they did grow up, obviously, in an evangelical environment, but they're sort of now hopeful agnostic or something along those lines, right, that they believe that there would be some kind of divine being and they're hopeful in the midst of all of that, but they are incredibly hesitant to refer to the Christian God related to that. Do I sort of have that right? Yeah, I think that there's certainly a rejection of the Christianity in, in which they grew up and the part of the, uh, and the expression of, uh, of the Christian subculture, as some might describe it, that is clearly rejected in what they're talking about. But along with that, they seem to be um, also suggesting that it's kind of anybody's guess whether or not Jesus is really who he said he was and, um, and the church is really the vessel through which God intends to uh, impact the world today. Those would see. Those are kind of my takeaways. I think what surprised yeah. me most when all of this is, I had no idea that they were ever Christian. Period. And so, like, wow, this was just their their show isn't about you know spreading a Christian message. No, I watched an episode, and, yeah. and they were um, tasting different kinds of hot dogs, right, or yeah. hot sauces, and or guessing, you name it. Yep, guessing they it was a blindfolded taste test of hot dogs from six different vendors yeah mm-hmm. that so, was the mm-hmm. i had no idea that they ever had a background in christianity and thus this whole article came out and uh, you know their series of videos or podcasts on ear biscuit and i was shocked i was like whoa this is you've now arrived where i thought you were this whole time well, and they must be appealing to a lot of uh, younger people these days i mean we've all talked uh, often about the idea that young people have increasingly rejected sort of the institutional version of the church, but are still interested in some kinds of spiritual conversations and all that. So I'm guessing that, I don't know if you checked it all, but among their 16.2 million followers, is there any sense that it's a lot of young people that find themselves in, in, in a similar philosophy of life? I think it's definitely a younger crowd, uh, you know, sort of like your mid upper teens. I think that they end up usually targeting uh, and then Reddit kind of was, sort of blew up with a little bit of a younger crowd as well, still early 20s and younger, uh, sort of discussing this and trying to figure out, like, you know, how do we handle the deconstruction and stuff? So, yeah, I think that's fair. Okay. So apparently there are a number of people who I would describe as Christian apologists, like people who like to and are very adept at refuting the arguments that are presented against Christianity. There, there are a number of apologists who, in reaction and response to this series of, of podcasts, um, they have presented the arguments in defense of the Christian faith, in defense of Christ, in defense of the Word of God, um, in defense of, of biblical uh, sexuality. I mean, I'm going to use that as a broad term to talk about male-female uh, creation, image bearers, uh, the relationship that God designed for us to be in. Um, And so that is one interesting way that we could go in this conversation. Like what are the arguments against the arguments that they're making? But those are also just really easily easy for people to find if they're interested in searching that out. Um, The other thing that I have heard posed is what people are really following is not the arguments that these guys lay out, but the guys themselves. Yeah. And and I think uh, that's where I think we should go with this, uh, Carmen, in particular, because I think we we do something in one of my classes where it's sort of 
we'd, we'd figure out a methodology or, or a method to sort of explore things in terms of whether or not they have some supportable claims to them, whether or not it'd be accurate, whether or not it'd be factual, truthful, whatever it is. The question is, is what's the method that we use to determine that which is true within this world or God's kingdom and all of that? And most of the time, we don't use a very robust method for determining what is true and what's real in this world. Um, we tend to lean on human experience and relationships. And so whatever we're experiencing in life in general or the people that we like and the people that we listen to pretty much kind of define our truth. And in class, we do a much more robust kind of paradigm with all of that, which would be, what do the scriptures say? And how do you even get into the scriptures so that you understand what the scriptures might be saying? We look at the history and the church traditions over 2000 years, Catholic and Protestant, lots of different writers, different parts of the world, all of that. We'll look at the sciences and psychology, sociology, some of those dimensions. And then human experience is one of the dimensions that we look at. But it is fascinating that when we just talk generally as a class, so which of those four categories between scripture and the church tradition and the sciences and human experience, which of those would you say that you lean in most to in terms of how you define your world and what matters to you in your world? And it's almost always the relationships around us, the people that we maybe watch or stream on some of these shows, the, the experience that we have in life. And that's both for young people, but I teach a lot of people that are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, and they would say the same thing. So it is interesting to me how much we really do lean into our experiences in life to sort of define our life. And yet, if you think about it for half a second, our experiences are so limited. It's it's by far the most limited of all of those sort of categories, and yet it defines so much. So if you like these guys or, you know, Carmen, you host a radio show. If you like Carmen and her show, then Carmen, you could say almost anything. And if somebody likes you, they're going to be like, yeah, I really like that idea. And I, I think there's so much of what we're dealing with here along these lines, it, just in terms of how we define what we think is true. Which I think suggests the tremendous responsibility that people with any kind of media or social media platform, um, the responsibility that we bear. Like mm -hmm. you yes. are a teacher at some level and scripture is really clear about the particular burden upon the teacher to speak truth and not lead people astray and not lead people into darkness, but lead them into light and um, not uh, not trip them up uh, with things. And that that's really it feels like both of these deconstructing faith narratives that are offered by uh, Lincoln Rett, that both of these are simply intended to trip other people up, yeah. to take other people down to um, to draw other people into this cynical questioning into which they have been drawn. That That's what it feels like to me. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I really appreciate what you said about that idea about being a teacher and the kind of responsibility to what you're held as a result. And I know for sure in my 20s when I was starting my teaching career, both in church and at university level in my early 30s, I pretty much had everything dialed in, right? I mean, I, there, I knew everything about all things in the kingdom. <laughs> and and uh, I, I felt like, you know, I deserve these sort of platforms. And as I moved into my late 30s and early 40s and now close to 50, I, it's a really sobering responsibility to give voice to God's kingdom in any way, shape, or form. I'm sort of aware that there's all kinds of things that I'm probably missing that I don't even know that I'm missing. And it should be a bit more sobering and humble than that. But Nat, I haven't listened to these two as they present things about God's kingdom. Would you say that it is inviting and humble and, hey, we're not sure? Or is it sort of deconstructive? And sometimes what can go with that is a bit of arrogance. Like, you know, 
you would be foolish to continue to think something about Christianity is true. And so listen to our way of thinking about these things. I mean, what is sort of their general vibe about that? Well, to start with, it's like five hours of audio as they deconstruct this over four episodes. So I have not gotten through all of it. So I can't really fully speak to, you know, their perspective. Uh, I did listen to the beginning of the first one and it didn't sound overly preachy. It wasn't actually, you know, at least the first part was a kind of a humble sort of like, this is where we're at. And this is just, you know, you, you sort of wonder where this, where we've come in our life. This is not something we talk about on our show. So let's, you know, dig into that. So I can at least say that they had a good start to a conversation, just being a little open about it. Uh, I don't really know where they went from there on, but in general, they don't take a super preachy approach to anything. Uh, so, you know, part of that is them just with their entertainment style, they're, they're not trying to necessarily give information as much as just engage in conversation. So, Carmen, where do we go in this conversation then from here in terms of just noticing that they're obviously, I don't know of any church, uh, Christian church followers that are even close to 16.2 million. So we're talking about these two have a streaming platform that probably dwarfs all the mega churches combined in our country, these gigantic churches of 5, 10, 15, 20,000 people. You could add them all up. And I bet that these two dwarf all of that put together. So this was one of the one of the questions that. I was sort of provoked to consider this week if people who have been following Rhett and Link um, through these conversations that are not about the things of the faith and in which they have never suggested they were spiritual leaders of any kind. So that's what Nat is pointing out when he talks about um, the way they approach their actual, you know, like daily YouTube video cast. Right. They're they're not that's not about being a Christian. It's not ever they're never talking about um, being Christians. That's that's not their gig um, uh, on that platform. And so, first of all, the fact that people followed them from that platform over to listen to these podcasts. So that was already like a step uh, away from where you normally follow them into some other terrain. And so once you're there. And they share not only their backstory of, you know, the once we were but now are um, kind of testimonies and and walk through the reasons they no longer believe what's what they once said they believed. Um, They describe themselves as hopeful agnostics. They say that they're pursuing the truth, but they also say in there, I mean, literally, this is a quote. Well, I have no clue. Why would you listen to one more word of a person who said they had no clue about something? Like, why would you go on to listen to the other four and a half hours of that audio if they already told you that they have no clue about that which they are speaking of? So um, I, I think that's part of my frustration with the with with this. And then my other question that I sort of asked myself this week. OK, so all of the people who were following Justin Bieber when he was not a Christian. When he became a Christian, did it have this kind of influence um, on his followers? I mean, did people, are people like interested in Jesus in a new way because a guy who they were already following became wholeheartedly committed to Christ? Same question. Um, I mean, I would ask that very same question. Um, okay, now his name has fled my mind. 
He helped me out here. I've written Who Link. else? Oh, like, Kanye? Well, I mean, yes, Kanye, 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 Kanye West, West qualified? Yes. Yes. Okay. So there's already, so when we talk about people who are being followed by literally millions of people. Right. And who, and people who are also in the inter- entertainment space. Um, have those guys, have their conversion stories had the kind of impact on mm. others that these deconversion stories have had? Um, and, and if so, then, you know, we ought to be shining a big bright light on the conversion testimonies as well as, you know, pointing out why the deconversion stories, you know, are actually powerful um, in, in the cultural context, uh, sort of cynical cultural context we live in today. So with all of that, I think the question becomes that, um, at least in my mind, I think that this is the kind of voice that is going to be more representative of the quote unquote faith or the spiritual voice in our culture and our Christian context moving forward. I think that the Christian voice is going to continue to be sort of marginalized and seen as lesser than. And my question for the two of you, maybe at this point, is, is there any, before we get into sort of deconstructing some of their thinking around it, or what is the pathway forward, is there merit in, in their conversation? Is there merit in their approach? Is there merit in suggesting that, hey, look, the Christianity of our youth, we needed to walk away from that. I mean, I, I certainly some people will talk about and say this idea of the Christian community has really kind of brought it upon itself in the way that it's acted or behaved or the kinds of things that it's taught. And so I'm always mindful that when there's a position that might be different than mine, it doesn't mean that it lacks merit. It doesn't mean that there isn't some substance there that's worth paying attention to and to sort of, you know, stick your fingers in your ears and go, la, 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 it's all just dumb. Um, I mean, what would you say as you've been listening, Nat or Carmen, in so far as you understand what they're saying, what is some of the merits that they bring to the table here that people would be like, yeah, you know, I, I can agree with that. I think their journey sort of started when they came to a place where their the Christianity that they grew up with sort of started to conflict with uh, what they were learning in school and sort of like what the greater society was. I think in part, a lot of it actually came down to uh, creation and uh, interpreting Genesis. And that sort of started them down the trail of like, well, I don't know if, you know, I fully agree with exactly how this set. And then from there, it just sort of led them down to... Um, you know, start of fall away from sort of like the Christian you know, people they were looking up to. So in that, you know, maybe there is something where they were set up where the, the conversation that they were having wasn't really handling the intersection between the Bible and Christianity and sort of our current world. I will answer this way. So one of the things that happens during these deconstructing conversations is um, really absolutely, I mean, like writing off. I mean, Josh McDowell's uh, evidence that demands a verdict is referred to in a super tongue in cheek manner in this, uh, in this series of podcasts. Um, Ravi Zacharias is absolutely like, it just openly suggested that, you know, he just doesn't even know what he's talking about. Tim Keller. I mean, like, so they, they set themselves, these guys who, um, don't have a church, don't have seminary educations, don't have any proven leadership in actual ministry. Like, right. The fact that they worked for crew when they were very young doesn't actually suggest they led anyone to Jesus. Right. So we don't there's no like effective ministry here other than to say they do. They have been able to amass a a huge following on YouTube for a product that is intentionally 
not Christian. Like they're they're not. It's not as if they've been suggesting they were spiritual mm-hmm. leaders um, through their um, mythical conversations. What what is it called? Mythical. What is it? Mythical morning. Good mythical, mythical morning. Mythical morning. Um, but the fact maybe that they chose the term mythical, uh, you know, maybe should have been an indication to some people. So you know where where I would say to people, hey, if you really want to honestly search for the truth. There are some guys out there who are worth listening to. Robbie Zacharias, I'd put him right up there on the top of the list. I think he's worth listening to. Um, I would not do what these guys have done. I mean, Rhett's strong recommendations of what people go and read are two pages on Wikipedia that aren't even based in any sort of like uh, fact thing. They're based in an, in an opinion site. Like all of the links on those pages are from opinion websites. And so I, I think that what I'm frustrated by is that they're not making an honest search for the truth, and yet they are telling people that that's what they're doing. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and that, you know, that's true, Carmen. And, and I think to me, it's it's a little bit, I don't know, lazy is not the right word. I don't want to be too overly critical, but I think that I will say it's very common for my students to come into class. It just actually happened again on, on Thursday morning, and they will ask the kind of questions. So, you're suggesting that the Genesis stories are literally true. And there's a literal garden and, and it happened at church. I was at a, a couple of weeks ago. We were talking a little bit about the one flesh relationship and, and the fact that Genesis two points us to what the beauty and wonder and holiness of the sexual covenant is meant to be. And again, a, a parishioner then raised their hand and asked the question and said, so you're saying that uh, Genesis is a literal story and we need to pay attention as such. So I think there's a lot of, I think it's pretty popular, pretty prevalent, I should say, that people are wondering if Genesis actually happened or if a, if a whale actually swallowed some dude named Jonah. Um, I know there's a church that some of my uh, extended family members go to that when they look at the scriptures, they understand it to be purely metaphor and that these stories didn't actually happen. It's more like Aesop's fables kind of thing where we learn a moral point from these uh, these stories that the Israelites told, and even all the ex- uh, all the way to the extent of that Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead, but in his story of being raised from the dead, it teaches us how we come into new life ourselves, and it's more of kind of a self help story. So I guess I do sympathize with what's happening here in terms of there's been a pretty significant attack on the scriptures over the past probably twenty five or thirty years in academia. And I think that's the kind of thing that's bleeding down to these two. And I think it's more common maybe than we even realize at times. It drives me nuts because it's lazy thinking to just sort of say, hey, look, these stories didn't happen. You need to like mine into the ancient Israelite culture. And it takes a lot more research than just this idea of, well, that seems like a a story. There's no way there could have been a giant that's nine feet tall that got hit with a stone and that was it. And and so it is a little frustrating to me with you, Carmen, but I, I also understand that people just don't get a lot of great teaching about this stuff and that the scriptures actually, how do they work and could they be true and, and all of that. So, you know, you got 16.2 million people listening to these two uh, talk about scriptures, and that means they're probably going to tell one person each. And then, you, I mean, you start having an entire culture that really has deconstructed the Bible. All right, let's let's unpack a couple of words that we have been using here that may um, we should probably define. So, Peter, when we use the word deconstruction, we talk about deconstructing the faith. What are we talking about? Yeah, I think. 
probably what we're talking about in this context is deconstructing the faith that was common in our country in terms of the way people grew up. And that faith was probably defined best by uh, most people growing up in a Protestant tradition where the scriptures were sort of the rule and guide and authority for life. And so I'm not sure what kind of context you guys grew up in, but uh, in the Protestant context, it certainly was that the scriptures were authoritative. And so we understood our faith through the lens of how we interpreted scripture. And the deconstruction happens on two levels there. One is, is the script, are the scriptures even reliable to begin with? And so why do we use them as authority if these things are not at all reliable or if these stories aren't true? Another way that that gets deconstructed is saying the people who are claiming to interpret the scriptures are doing a rubbish job of interpretation. So we're going to deconstruct the way they think about it. So kind of, it happens on two levels. It happens both to deconstruct the interpretations of authorities. And it also is deconstructing the authority of scripture itself. I, I think in the Catholic church, we obviously have seen that there's less emphasis on the scriptures as being authoritative and more emphasis being placed on the Pope sort of being the divine medium of the voice of God. There's a a Latin phrase that describes the Pope's responsibility and his infallibility that's called ex cathedra or, or from the lips of God. And when a Pope speaks then, or a Pope writes a document that that actually has some sort of divine authority attached to it, akin to the scriptures. And so deconstruction in the Catholic faith is the idea that the Pope and uh, for sure the Pope uh, and the cardinals and, and some of the bishops and what we've seen through the last maybe 15, 20 years with all these abuse scandals, that's been deconstructed. Um, and that it also has been deconstructed as a faith that just has a bunch of rote rituals that aren't actually meaningful at all. So there's lots of levels of deconstruction, but it almost always relates to deconstructing whatever is seen as authoritative and therefore nothing that's been presented by the church, Protestant or Catholic can be trusted. Therefore, we need to go out and carve out a new way forward and decide sort of for ourselves what would be the best pathway forward for understanding life and faith. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's sort of how the deconstruction process has worked the last 30 years. So I appreciate that. And thank you for, um, you know, like, thank you for walking us around in that. Uh, I think that one of the notable qualities of this series of podcasts by Rhett and Link um, is is their very effective, um, I mean, they're very effective communicators. Yes. And so um, it's one thing for me to come right out and um, like say that I don't believe in, in the Christian faith or I don't believe in the things that I used to believe in. Um, and and to say that I've read all the books, which, by the way, is uh, is the testimony of Rhett in here, that he has read every book Ravi Zacharias has ever written and he finds them not compelling. OK, so it's one thing for him to say those things. Um, it's another thing for the, the for that to then translate for the hearer. And and saying, well, then I don't need to read the Bible and I don't need to read anything Ravi Zacharias has ever written. And I certainly don't need to listen to him when he talks. Because this guy who I follow about what hot dog is best or how to make a possum corn dog, this guy is the authority in my life. Like that, that's, that's like the, like, why would you, why would you even care if this kind of person is or isn't a believer in Jesus? And why would you follow where they lead in this conversation when, um, when all they're doing I mean, they're not building anything. They are only tearing down what yep. others are saying. 
Yep. No. And that's where I think that personal charisma in a speaker or a preacher or a podcast host or, or the, these YouTube streamers or whatever they all are, I think personal charisma almost always wins the day. And so if you are funny and interesting as you eat hot dogs, then people have that's really funny and interesting and they're drawn into you, into your charisma. And so then when you do start speaking about the faith or the scriptures or the deconstruction, then everybody's like, yeah, that makes sense. And, and I, you know, there's a lot of different directions <laughs> we could go with that in terms of how we understand what is credible evidence for anything. But I think to your point, Carmen, to follow up on that, that is one of the more frustrating things for me is that it is relatively easy to deconstruct something. Um, the reconstruction is infinitely harder in terms of, so if we're not going to believe that this is true, what are we going to believe? And it is, it's frustrating for me in the classroom. I certainly have students come into my class and they've just been flattened at times by other professors who almost maybe took a little twinkle in their eye joy in deconstructing the simplistic, naive thinking or whatever it is, but then they just leave them flattened and there's no hopeful reconstruction. And if we can't do that, then we are left in, in whatever their version is of uh, agnosticism. But as the article points out, in their agnosticism, nobody has experienced any kind of hope in their depression. Nobody is walking through the anxiety of life. Nobody has a sense of stability, hope, and purpose, and identity, and all of sorts of things. So it's kind of nice and kitschy to deconstruct. But tell me who is reconstructing a beautiful life in God's kingdom and what it is that we're meant for. Because Again, I can sympathize with some of what they say. I have some issues with maybe how I grew up in within Christendom. But then if I'm going to deconstruct that, you have to responsibly come alongside and say, so what is true then? What is the hope? And there's numerous examples. Of course, we could talk through those sorts of things. Like I remember uh, when the cross was reduced down for me to the idea sort of that God was mostly angry, needed a little bit of blood. And so Jesus took the shot on our, on our behalf. And it, you know, it wasn't ever presented exactly that way, but it was, an, it was a troubling way to think about the cross only. And, and so I began to read people like N.T. Wright, and I began to read people like Dallas Willard and uh, other thinkers that have walked through what happened on the cross that was a really hopeful reconstruction besides the fact that you had some sort of bloodthirsty God in heaven. That needed to be deconstructed, the bloodthirsty God. But if you just left it there and said, well, then Christianity can't be true because it presents this God who's bloodthirsty. No, absolutely not. There are way, I think, more helpful ways to think about what happened in the beautiful redemption of the cross than that. And that's what we have to do. And that isn't what they are doing. They're certainly not reconstructing a helpful way forward. Okay, so um, maybe we pivot because I think what we know to be true uh, is echoed in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, right? That God has set eternity in the heart of man. He's yeah. made everything appropriate in its time. He has set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. People have a natural inclination toward the mystical, toward the spiritual, toward the divine, because God has actually set eternity in our hearts. And so the very notion that Rhett and Link and others would be longing um, to know the truth that sets them free is because it's real. It can be pursued. It does exist. Um, Peter, you and I had a conversation earlier this week um, on air about this, this, uh, this movement. I don't know. Movement? I don't know. Yeah, I don't spirit, know if yeah, call right. it that. 
this yeah. uh, gr- this group of people who we would now describe as secular monks. And it's this pursuit of self-optimization. It is absolutely distinct from and apart from the pursuit of um, a holy God. And instead, it is the pursuit of the purest form of the self. Well, if you're if you even use categories like purity and impurity, those categories come from somewhere. Yeah. They they really that's really true. And it's it's <laughs> you said it so well, um, in terms of the idea of a hunger and we have eternity in our hearts. And so the question isn't whether we have that. The question is 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 what do we pursue in order to try to fill that void? And and that's where if you can begin to sort of systematically break down what that even secular monk pursuit would be, it really is representative of saying we're going to reject the Christian or some other faith view to pursue that void in our heart. And we're going to do it through self-optimization. And I mean, that one takes like 13 and a half seconds to break down in terms of of deconstructing it, which is simply like my understanding is, is that we're all going to die. Right. And so like the body begins to break down and you can do, as you and I talked about in air, what Jack Dorsey of Twitter has done and optimize his body into sort of this incredible machine uh, of, of how he runs the rhythm of his day. And he's 45 years old. And I'm sure if, if I stood side by side with Jack Dorsey right now, that guy would be the archetype or model uh, of, of a physically fit, beautiful 45 year old male. And I would pale in comparison, you know, uh, balding, slightly chubby uh, is certainly breaking down. In, in my physical being. And yet the reality and is he would say Jack that's I, because, okay, he would say that's because you have a wife and children and both of those I, are just a distraction toward that, I, which yeah. is keeping you from being your optimized self. Like they yeah. are so narcissistic and self-obsessed that yeah. they don't have room in their lives for actual people. And that's the crazy thing. Like, I mean, I could give up my children and drink kale shakes and probably be like a lot healthier because of it. But I, I'm, you know, what I think Jack doesn't understand is that even in this uh, time of, of recording this hill, just before we're in a Saturday morning right now, and the hour and a half I spent with my kids before recording this episode of the till, like my heart is so full from that in a way that uh, maybe going so, with some meditative yoga out in our treehouse was not going to ever do for me as opposed to the fullness of my kids. And does it take time, energy, and effort to do it? Yeah, but that's sort of the secret of life, right? In terms of um, if we're going to become self-absorbed, you never actually can experience the kind of wholeness that I think is is available through a different way of life. And the reality, again, is if Jack Dorsey and I were roughly the same age, if we're both standing there when we're 95 and 92 years old, let's take a shot of comparison then, because I bet you Jack's going to have broken down just a little bit there, too. And so this idea of, of an optimized human and pursuing perfection, death is the it is always the great revealer of the illusions of life. And if we're going to give ourselves to anything that this world provides, it is going to fail at the end of the day. I mean, someday, Carmen, you're not going to be a radio show host. Someday, I'm not going to be a professor. Someday, our names are going to begin to sort of fade into the dustbin of history. Mm -hmm. And it can be pretty intoxicating to have our names get better known and people know us and they follow us and they like us and all those sorts of things. But in 50 years, we're in the dustbin for the most part. And if we aren't aware of the fact that our home is actually coming from that, that our home is in a different place than this earth and you cannot find the wholeness and the shalom out of this earth that you want, you can have 16.2 million followers on podcasts. I promise you, the two of them are also going to fade into the dustbin of history. And so if you are not oriented towards death, not in a morbid way, 
But if you don't understand that death is coming for all of us, um, it, you, you end up in the illusions of life for a very long time. And so to reconstruct a different kind of faith that actually deals with the fact that death is standing in front of us, when you do that, now you're on sort of the very first step of what is the heart of the gospel. And the heart of the gospel is that that tomb was empty. And as soon as you take that first step, you are now on the road to reconstructing an actual life of wholeness that you simply can't through any other means. So it's, you know, I don't know. There's a lot there, but it is frustrating to me, these false promises that are being perpetrated that are not really thought through at all. And, And we should just do a podcast sometime that is all about, here's how, here are the many ways in which you might die. Now that probably wouldn't get a lot of people to listen, but but it would reveal what's actually true, and and uh, not again, not in a morbid way, but in a hopeful way. Now, now you've been quiet for a while. I think there's already a movie that uh, you know talks about all the different ways you can die in the Wild West. <laughs> See, that's what we could go back. We could go back to a Hunger Games like that in the Wild West now. Uh, you know, we could just get the cornucopia and the weapons. And I mean, that would be, you know, maybe not a great idea. But but again, I, th- I think the point remains how many illusions we attend to in life. So, yeah, no, that makes sense. Once we've gone down this path of deconstruction, then, and you talk about the importance of reconstructing in this difficulty, how do you go about reconstructing? You know, obviously, yeah. so so Rhett's read something, right? So he's at least somewhat read. Uh, what? Talk to me. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think you have to obviously see. So what is the truth claim that they're making? And, you know, let's pretend their truth claim is that the scriptures are not reliable. Then at that point, you really can begin to um, to explore that topic. But I think much more systematically than we often have environments in which to do that. Uh, churches don't have the time, effort, and energy to do that on a Sunday morning. Um, I'm not sure what context you do, but you do need to rebuttal uh, to say that, well, maybe you're taking the scriptures. Um, there's a different way of thinking about these things. So one way to reconstruct is simply to deconstruct their deconstruction. But the other part of it, I think, like I said, continues to go back to what do we claim is the heart of the gospel? I mean, Carmen, how would you go about reconstructing what, what they're talking about? So I think you have to go back to the foundation. Um, and I think that you, you have to have a conversation about the reality of who Jesus is. I mean, you, I know that the temptation is to start with the creation story, but if you start with Jesus, it's at least a historical fact that's impossible to deny. I mean, it's attested to outside of the Christian scriptures. It's attested to, um, in other religious traditions. And so, um, if you start with Jesus and then it gives you the opportunity to talk about what Jesus said about himself. Yeah. And, um, and, and I think that the most powerful answer to a deconver- deconversion narrative or testimony is a conversion testimony. And so, um, you know, C.S. Lewis was a pretty smart guy. Uh, he yeah. was also an atheist who was, uh, you know, utterly blown away by the reality of who Jesus is and what he had done and what that meant, not only for him personally, but for all of us, um, uh, you know, so I would say that there are some Rosaria Butterfield would be one today whose um, conversion testimony is undeniable in its not only personal power, but in the fruit that it has now borne, not only in her life, but in the lives of so many others. And so if we're going to know people by their fruit, then I would say let's look at the fruitfulness of people who have conversion testimonies and let's look at the fruitfulness of people who have deconversion testimonies. And I'm not suggesting that 
they're not both atheist or agnostic at this point. But I think challenging their deconversion stories would be an interesting approach, not challenging the things they're challenging, the veracity of things related to the Christian faith, because that's sort of propositional apologetics 101. It's actually not that hard to do. But challenging, you know, did they ever really have a conversion testimony? Like maybe the the point at time where they were lying was when they were when they were selling Jesus to people supposedly as missionaries and they didn't really believe it themselves. Now, that would be compelling to know about someone if they are such a pervasive communicator that they are able to speak lies and convince people that they're true. Well, then how do I know that what you're saying today isn't just the newest lie you're selling? Because frankly, the lie you're selling now is raking you in some cash. Hmm. I mean, there's a, motiva- there's, a, there's a total motivation part to all of this that, I mean, there's a market motivation to be doing what they're doing. Yeah, that's true. That's an interesting point, Carmen, that um, I think is helpful that when somebody is changing their views and they've been promoting one and then they promote the diametrically opposed one, how do you begin to yeah. trust that? How, how, how do you say this is more reliable than the last view? Uh, yeah. Okay. Here would be the other thing that I would raise since you asked. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So I did ask. <laughs> these are, these are two, these are two men whose lives have been um, like literally knit together since the very first uh, day of elementary school. Yep. First grade. And, um, <clears throat> and for one of them, he really grew up in the context of the other one's family because his family fell apart and, his parents got divorced. And, and so um, you're really talking about guys who are closer than brothers, but they don't share the same blood. And so if, if you could have the opportunity to talk with them about the relationship that they have that's closer than brothers, um, then there would be a starting point, I think, for a conversation about the way God adopts us into a family through, through an older brother who, you know, with whom we do share a blood once it is applied to us. Like, I think there's an opportunity here because of the relationship that they have with each other. But I also recognize neither of them is going to respond to an invitation to the gospel unless the other one does, because their relationship with each other is of greater importance to them than any other relationship. Hmm. Boy, it'd be interesting if one of them did, though, wouldn't it? Now, that would be uh, a podcast I'd want to listen to where one of them went from deconver- you know, deconversion back to conversion and the other one didn't. Now, that would be an interesting. Maybe we should try that, Carmen. Um, we can flip a coin and one of us <laughs> go the other direction for like a couple of weeks and see how the till plays itself out from there. So in the last few minutes, as we wrap this up, uh, how do you handle uh, deconstructing ideas and, and reconstructing them uh, you know, sort of like as a broad topic. So as you study stuff and you, you know, like, hey, there's something here that's sort of off, you start deconstructing, say, maybe a perspective you held, like not necessarily even a deep, you know, uh, Christian perspective, but even just sort of like all of your beliefs. How do you go about that in a way that allows you to reconstruct in a healthy manner? Like what's that framework that needs yeah. to happen? Yeah, I I mean, I am not sure that I would have the dogmatic answer for that, but I would have a suggestion around it. And that would be, that sort of the first step is to remember that the heart of our faith and our following Jesus is relational first and propositional second. And what I mean by that is we are invited into an actual relationship with Jesus. And when those things happen, and, and, and when you say yes in a surrendered kind of life, I will follow, I will pick up my cross, you are master and Lord, I can't pretend I understand everything about the kingdom, but I'm going to bend my knee about it. 
sort of the first things that begin to happen in your life are not that all of a sudden your thinking all clears up or that your doubt all goes away, but you get some sort of weird anchor in your heart, a, a gift of faith, as it were, an ability that things um, are stable somewhere in your soul, even though you still have a lot of questions about your faith. And, and I think we need to have a lot more language about the kinds of things that happen when you say yes to following Jesus that are very real, though they might be immaterial, though they might be in that relational mm. category. Like, what does it mean on that level? And then from there, Nat, I think you can sort of freely begin to explore all the ways that we think about God's kingdom um, as opposed my, my theology professor said it this way. He said, when you start in that relational place, then this theological or biblical exploration becomes an act of worship mm. as opposed to an act of proving that God is real. And I just don't think you can propositionally prove that God is real. The case is better for that in my mind, but I don't think you can ever cross from death to life through propositional statements. And so how do you do it? Well, that's a subject for another episode of The Till. Like, what's the process to begin the reconstruction? But it's got to start with relationship first. And then from there, um, boy, it's really fun to explore the wonder of God through some of our propositional ideas. So I think I would echo precisely what Peter has said. I might say it just slightly differently. And it's to start by asking yourself the very basic question, do I live in a universe that is personal or a universe that is impersonal? Yes, it's a great and way if to say the, it. if the universe is personal... It has room for a God who is real. And if there's room for a God who is real, then then it's the starting point of a conversation about how do I know that God? Who is that God? What is he like? Um, what has he done in the context of human history? How would I know more about that? How would I be in a relationship with him? All of those kinds of things. So that's the the base. The most basic question is, do I accept that the universe is personal? And if I don't, and if I regard the universe as impersonal, I have no foundation upon which to even begin reconstructing reality. So for Carmen and Nat, this is Peter. We'll catch you next time on The Till. The Till.